Welcome to Waypoint. I'm glad you're here. If you're watching at home, I'm glad you're with us. Uh, we're celebrating Easter, and there's a lot to celebrate. Um, if I were to try to boil it down in a simple phrase, you don't have to get what you deserve. That's Easter. You don't have to get what you deserve. And we don't deserve very much. If, if you just listen to the song that they sang, that was humanity. That's how we live life. We identify goals, things that we want to accomplish that are important. Maybe it's honoring God. Maybe it's finding a way to treat my family with a different level of respect. It's we, like we have these high goals that we set. And then we put boundaries in place for ourselves. We, we take on these ideas like, I'm not going to think that way, or I'm going to have a, this kind of attitude when I approach this sort of thing. And we do great for two weeks until we circle back around and start doing that thing all over again. And, and we're frustrated by it, and we don't understand why it's happening. I would describe it as a disconnect. There's a disconnect between what we want and what we do. There's a disconnect between what we know to be true and right and good and what we do with our hearts, how we act upon those things. And it's frustrating to us. So over the next three weeks after this, we're going to talk about what happens in our lives that creates these disconnects. What, what, what comes into our lives and is there anything that we can do to prevent them? This morning, we're going to talk about it in light of a sacrifice that Jesus makes. Like, he, he puts his life on the line for you and I. And because of that, we're excited, we're grateful. And so we set about to live our lives in a different way. And even then, we circle back. And we start doing some of the stuff that we don't want to. And we're frustrated by that. When you... When you find yourself in that place, have you ever had the thought, have you ever wondered, I wonder if God will get fed up with me. I wonder if there's a, a, a line where he just says, it's enough, enough is enough. I can't stand what you're doing. I mean, if we had a friend who constantly said, I won't do that, and then did, there would be a line. You would eventually draw a line and say, no, not anymore, this isn't going to happen. Do we have to worry about that with God? Well, we're going to take a look at a section of Scripture that's embedded in the Easter story that I think answers this in a way that nothing else could. It's an incredible idea, but we often miss it because it's packed inside a cultural thing that goes right over our heads. Now, in this case, it's not, it's not the Israel culture that we don't understand, this Jewish culture. There was another culture that had a lot of dominance at the time, and this stuff had been integrated into Israel, and it was part of the Roman culture. Um, just to help you understand this, at, at the time this would have happened, uh, we're talking almost a hundred years that Israel had been under Roman rule. So in 63 BC, they're taken over, and by the time Jesus gets into this moment where we're going to take you to this section of Scripture, there were a whole bunch of things that had happened because Rome had dominated the landscape for so long. Um, for, there were different groups who kind of responded to this differently. There was one who said, let's fight. Let's start a rebellion. Let's start a war. Let's kick Rome out. I don't care if it costs everybody their lives. It's worth it. There's another group who hated Rome, 
but didn't like the war concept, and so they went out and lived in the deserts. They just were apart from everybody. But there was another group. They publicly said, we hate Rome. But privately, they were thrilled to death they were there because their wealth and their power came from the Roman structure, and they adopted that stuff in like you wouldn't believe. They took in their values. They did all kinds of stuff. And in some cases, they took in lesser things, things that weren't really that big of a deal that eventually became integrated throughout Jewish culture as if it was normal. One of those things was how you ate a meal with a group of people that you had. It's, it's why we have this kind of set up weird right now. Um, th this is... This is one of those um, things called the triclinium that was very common in the Roman world but got integrated into the Jewish world. Now, here, here's the thing. I don't know if you've ever gone through this. This happens every time I do these things. But say you're going out to a restaurant with a group of friends. Doesn't everybody have to deal with the awkward moment where you're trying to figure out where everybody is supposed to sit, Right? It, do you want to sit across from me? Am I sitting next to you? I mean, will you please move over? We're trying, and you like shuffle everybody around until everybody has a seat, and then the awkward moment's over. And you would think that that would be eliminated if somebody invited you over for a party at their house. Like, right, we're all going to sit down, but it's not. Because they'll say to you, out of the gracious and kindness of their heart, you can sit anywhere. But you know, you know there is a certain chair they sit in every time. You know, and you don't want to sit in that chair, but they won't identify what that chair is. And so you feel it out. I don't know if you've ever done this. Like, you walk to the side of the table because it's probably at least one of the head ones. And so you're gonna, you go to the, maybe the end of the table, and you go to the side, and you kind of tap a chair, and you're like, is this okay? And you, do, you test them, and you get, kind of get a look on their face like, you're messing with my chair. And then you go, ah, I, I can sit somewhere else. Or you, you know you've picked a good one, and you can sit down. By the way... If I'm the only one who has that experience, you're lying, right? We all have that. But in the Roman world, you didn't have to worry about that. In the Roman world, you knew where you were supposed to sit, and there were assigned seats. Some of them were very clear. Others you could pick. But the host got to choose where the assigned seating. Now, this necessarily wouldn't happen with family, but this would happen... When, again, if you're having a group of friends over, and this was the style of eating that you would be at. It's called a triclinium, and it would be low to the ground. Actually, the height of this is about right. It would be a little off the ground because you're going to eat off of this table. The size of this table is wrong. Um, this is what we had, but maybe a third of this would actually be the table that you would have. And um, we have some pictures of triclinians that they can put up. You're going to see they eventually got smart, and they would actually elevate these things. And they would put the table kind of in a sunk recess area right in front where everybody could eat off of. But you knew what was going on. In, in Rome, if you sat a whole bunch of guests, this opening would be big in the middle, and people would come in and entertain in there. This is also where they would come and they would serve you different glasses of wine that you needed. They would change the plates. You had all of this going on. Now, I need some volunteers. And normally I try to pick them out before I come up here. But today we're just going to say, Ty, could you come up and sit right here? Hezekiah, can you come up here? Um, Tracy, can you come over here? Scott, can you come up here? And see, we have volunteers. 
Yes, give them a round, right? They don't know what they're getting into, and it doesn't matter. They're going to be okay. Uh, if you can sit right there, and you don't have to lay down. You're over here. Okay, now, um, we're going to correct how they would sit because they're already sitting improperly. You have to sit on your left side. You don't use that hand to eat. You only use your right hand to eat. Yes, yeah, so it's awkward. Um, and if you wanted to get the one that was on your feet, you could actually put that under your shoulder and give you a little support if you guys wanted to move the pillow up. Okay, all right, you like what you're doing. That's fine. Um, now, uh, they, they would sit down like this, and again, you would have this little table, and you'd have this whole meal, and there's evidence that this was part of, you're wondering, why in the world are we doing this? Why are we talking about this? Because there's a Passover meal that's a part of Easter. And if we're paying attention, this kind of thing had been integrated into Israel. In fact, if, if you're not sure that it has, I put up three different scriptures that I'm going to put on the screen that were, um, Jesus was invited to some different places. And when it said they reclined, this is it. This is exactly what they were doing. You, you were invited in, and there was an order to this that everybody understood. Everybody understood except us. And we're going to try to help you understand that order, but I want you to see this is exactly what's going on. So this Passover meal gets called for by Jesus. And this happens in Luke chapter 22. He tells Peter and John, I want you to go prepare the Passover. He actually gives them some instructions to go find a guy to kind of follow him and then ask for a room. And then this is what would happen. Verse 12, he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. The first thing you can know is that the person who has this room is incredibly wealthy. Most Jewish families lived in a one-room dwelling. You slept on the floor and you ate outside. You didn't, you didn't prepare stuff inside. So this place is big enough that they're actually preparing indoors and they're going to have a whole group and it's on the second floor. Um, if you think this is odd that they've made this request, it's not. At the time of Jesus, there were so many people coming to Israel, coming to Jerusalem for Passover that the priest declared, you can't have a Passover meal unless you have at least 10 people there. Because we can't keep up with the number of lambs that need to be sacrificed for all of you, so you have to group together. And so these rooms were situated all around, and people would let groups of people come and experience the Passover meal. So this is not odd, this is not out of the ordinary, but we start to get an idea that this is exactly what they were doing at Passover. How do we know that? Verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. They're at a triclinium. And that means there's going to be some assigned seats. And here's the awkward part. It, so you thought maybe Romans kind of avoided all awkwardness because they had assigned seating, except... They assigned your seat based on your social status. So when you came in the room, if you chose a seat that you should not have sat in, the host would move you down in front of everybody and put you in the proper order. Maybe the best way for you to understand how this works is you would, if you go to a wedding, you know how they sit everybody 
up near the front who's family of the bride and groom, and then there's layers back, and then you're at the back table because you knew the cousin of the friend who knew the groom. And so you're there, but you still got the meal, but you're just way, way back, and you don't care because it's no big deal. But in a group of 12, um, does it create problems? In case you would think, Jesus would never do this. I'm telling you, this was just a part of their culture. It was how they operated. I want to show you this. This is actually in the text. In the same chapter, all of this is taking place. This, this happens. This is verse 24. A dispute also arose among, among them, this is the disciples, as to which one of them was considered to be the greatest. Why? Because they just got sorted. And anytime you create a pecking order, somebody's going to argue with that. Oh, I'm definitely better than you. I should have been in that chair. I should have been in there. So, but here's the thing. If we pay attention to what the text has to say, we can actually figure out where some of these people are sitting, and it's kind of important. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to try to figure out why certain people are in certain places. Um, for, for instance, we know that over here is where Peter sat. Peter had been taxed to go and prepare the meal. He was supposed to go and do that. And this is where the servant would sit. They didn't have a certain servant, so somebody had to come and serve drinks. Somebody had to take out different courses of meals. Somebody had to do that. And we're fairly certain it's Peter. The thing is, we don't know if Peter chose to be here or if Jesus assigned him to do that. We're not sure. We, um, there's kind of an interesting thing where you wonder if Peter was there because he was thinking something would happen to him if he made that choice. If he was paying attention to Jesus' teaching on this, he would, have gathered, um, he would have gathered a nugget of wisdom. This is in Luke. This is a few um, chapters earlier. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says this. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person, person more distinguished than you may have been invited. So if you sat a little bit too high and somebody more distinguished than you comes in, you're going to be embarrassed in front of everybody when you get moved down. Now, now, he's talking about making sure that you don't think too highly of yourself, but he's using a cultural context that they would have understood. He says this in verse 10, but when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes in, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. <laughs> I wonder, I, I do actually think this happened. I think Peter chose this spot, thinking that when Jesus came in as the host of he would look at him and say, you don't, you don't belong there. You belong up here. And he would get some cred by being moved around the room. Why do I say that? Well, because there's other evidences for why he's in this spot. A little later in the text, he gets into a dispute with Jesus over washing feet. I don't know if you guys remember this or not. Everybody's feet hanging off the end of this thing. The servant would go around as part of their role and wash the feet. But we are somehow deep into this meal, and Jesus feels like he's compelled to get up and go wash everybody's feet. Why? Because Peter took the role of a servant, but his heart wasn't into it, and he hadn't gone and touched anybody's feet yet. 
And when Jesus gets up to do that, the only person who fights with him is Peter. Why? Because it's his job. And now you're taking my job. You're going to make me look bad. You can't do that. Don't do that. And Jesus, again, schools him on what it means to be a servant. But there's another reason that, that we're fairly certain this is Peter, is there's a section of scripture in John. This is in John 13, where something happens that's it's different. Um, in verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to this, to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Jesus just started saying, somebody's going to betray me. And Peter has to motion down another disciple. Why would he have to do that? Well, because he's really far away, and the person he's trying to get a hold of is this guy. In fact, he's probably going to be the only one who could see him sitting where he is. And, and here's what we know. In, in verse 25, it says, leaning back, this person leans back on Jesus and asks him, Lord, who is it? He's the only person at the meal who could have leaned back. He's the person that this Peter was trying to communicate with. And so we kind of in a position where you're facing out that way. So he would have been the only one who could have kind of got his attention and said, ask him who's going to betray us. Who's going to do that? And he rolls back and he's the only one who can do that. And he asks Jesus, hey, what's going on? Now, if you haven't figured it out, Scott is in the Jesus place. He's the host. Yeah, lots of pressure. All right. Um, the, ho the host sat here. But, um, I don't know if you guys have uh, seen the picture of the Last Supper. Have you guys seen the, the painting of that? It's, it's really beautiful artistry. It's all wrong historically. What they, what they drew was a table that you sat at in chairs, because this, this happened in the 1493 to 1498 range, 1495 to 1498. And they put Jesus right in the middle, but that's not a, a triclinium spot. The host was right here. And everybody else kind of all the way down through here was then put in order of some importance. That's the way the triclinium worked. And so at the end sat a servant who would come and do this. And then over here, there were two spots. We know he motions to a disciple who leans back and asks Jesus, who's going to betray us? Do we know who that is? In fact, we do. In verse uh, let's see, um, 23, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. This is the one, this is the person who is writing the book of John, this is John. So John is in what is known um, in, everybody else would have known this, we just don't, he is in the trusted friend spot. This is somebody that you would put to the right of you that you knew had your back no matter what. And did you see how he wrote about himself? John says, I'm the one that Jesus loves. It's like, wow, a little braggy here. It, he's just relating what's true. I know by me being here that Jesus has communicated he has great love for me. I'm trusted by him. Just based on where I'm sitting in this seating chart. Okay? So we have, we have Jesus being the host. He's the one who called the meal. He would be there. We know where Peter sat. We know where John sat. There's one more spot 
that's the most important for this meal. It was for the guest of honor. This person um, was, the spot was often given to the person who had uh, a distinguishing role or, or job or position. Often a politician or somebody like that, somebody who might have to send out a message. And so they were, they were seated on the end over here so they could slip in and out without disturbing everything. But everybody knew that they were being honored if they sat to the left of the host. Do we know who that person is? There are some hints. In fact, it's pretty clear. The end of verse 18 He's talking about what's going to happen with his betrayal, and he says, He who shared my bread has turned against me. Now listen, with this seating arrangement, people spread out all over the place. Who is in a position to share Jesus' bread? It's one of two people. It's not, John's not going to betray him. So it's the person who's sitting in the most honored spot. We're given another clue in verse 26. This is, Jesus does this action, then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This is called the sop. It's a piece of the lamb. It's two pieces of uh, unleavened bread. Think of yourself as a cracker. It's got some bitter herbs in it, and then they would take that that um, apple mixture that we had last week for Passover, they would dip it in that and they would hand it to the guest of honor first. This would ha be handed to everybody at the meal, but the guest of honor would be handed it first. The guest of honor at the Passover meal was Judas. So it only leaves a few options. One, Jesus didn't know that the guy who was going to betray him was sitting next to him in the place of honor, but everything in the scripture tells us he absolutely knew. He knew that was Judas. Two, Judas got there early and staked out that seat because he wanted to be in the position of honor. And when Jesus walked in, he chose not to move him down in the order, but let him stay. Or option three, Jesus looked at Judas and said, I want you to have this place of honor next to me. Come sit here. Be honored this evening. Does it really matter if it was one or like second or third option? In any case, Jesus chose to let Judas, my wife, right, stay in this position of honor. And everybody at the meal would have seen it. All right, can you guys give them a hand? You guys can head back down. Thank you so much for doing that. Appreciate it. This raises a lot of questions for me. Let's start with Judas. How is it? that Judas walked with Jesus for three years, saw miracles that he did, had a friendship with him, and still got to the end of his life and thought, 
I think I'll betray him for 30 pieces of silver. How? How did he see all of that? I mean, haven't you thought at times, if I could have, if I could have been there, if I would have walked with Jesus, everything would have been better. It wasn't better for Judas. Something had fouled up his heart, and we know that he had this love for money, so much so that he was willing to betray his friend for 30 pieces of silver. It's not much. But how did that happen? How did that disconnect between what he knew? You know what he knew? He knew he was in a favored and honored position, that he was loved by God. He's sitting in a room where the guy next to him, next to Jesus, is going, I'm one who's loved by Jesus, and knows it, and he doesn't have a clue. How could he not see that? How could he not know that and have it touch his heart? Now, I I think there are reasons for that. We're going to talk about them over the next three weeks things that will happen in our lives that cause a disconnect between the stuff that we know to be right, true, and good and what we actually do. Judas was living that out. We can see that in this story. But there's a a bigger set of questions that I have for Jesus. If you were sitting next to the person that you knew would betray you, not in theory, not your guessing, you know. You know they're going to betray you. Do you leave them there? Or do you make it clear you're not so thrilled and happy? I don't know about you, but if I knew, down the pecking order you go. Like, you're going to sit over here. Maybe I'm going to assign you to servant seat. Let's make it clear how I feel about what you're thinking, what you're doing, and why you're doing it. It's not okay. But that's not a choice that Jesus makes. In fact, if you start looking at the reasons that he could have let this happen, what is it? That he didn't want to have conflict? Jesus is the one who brought up that there would be a betrayal. He's not afraid of conflict. That's not the issue. There's only one thing that makes sense at the end of the day. He knew Judas was going to betray him, and he wanted to still communicate to him how much he loved him and cared about him, and that if Judas wanted a different, a different ending to his story, it was available to him because of how much Jesus loved him. I know you're going to betray me. I know you're running a circle in your life right now. But I want you to know I love you. I have your back, and I'm going to put you in a place of honor in front of everybody to show you just how much I care for you. I've been kicking this other thought around, too. I've realized that the person who would be seated here was often somebody who might have to deliver an important message, and I've wondered, I've wondered if... um, Jesus cleared the way for Judas to be able to deliver a message that was horrible for him. Like it would start, it would start a whole series of things that would end in his death and crucifixion on a cross. This was going to be a brutal thing. But he left space for him to go and deliver that message because it was good for mankind. And so he put him in this honored spot because even though his message was twisted and wrong, it was still important. And Judas was still loved. See, at any point in this story, 
Judas could have turned, recognized that Jesus loved him, accepted that grace, and had a different outcome for his story. But there was a disconnect, and he missed it. And his heart was hardened towards this person who loved him, and he never saw it. The truth is, it's possible for you to do that too. It's possible for you to come and celebrate Easter service, to be excited about what you're doing with family and getting to hang out, and that is good. It's sweet. There's nothing better than that. But I don't want you to miss that this is about not getting what you deserved, but it's a choice that you get to make. See, God offered an out for Judas, and he missed it because his heart was in the wrong place, and you could too. You could miss how much Jesus loves you. You could miss how much he cares about you. You could miss that he would look at you doing circles and go, you know what? I have never given up on you. I will never give up on you. You are somebody I love and favor. I do not and will not be fed up with you. I love you. And you could respond to that. Or there could be a disconnect somewhere between what you know to be true and what you act on. And you could miss engaging that kind of love with your life. Your story could turn out like Judas. Where you have the almighty creator of the universe sacrificing, showing love for you, and you miss it. My friends, I just want you to pause this morning Pause before you get going and with the rush of the rest of your day. I want you to get this clearly in your head. You have an opportunity to not get what you deserve. You have an opportunity of hope and love and freedom and joy that's found only in Jesus. But you have to accept that. You have to step into that. That has to be something that you take a hold of. It's more than just knowing it. It's giving your heart to it. I'm going to live a different way. I'm going to be the kind of person who embraces this love. I'm going to know I'm loved. And it changes your story. Will you just, uh, for a minute, just close your eyes and bow your heads. I just want to talk to you. If, if, you're making decisions, choices in your life right now that you know have not been good for you. They're, they just keep taking you in circles. You just keep running down the same path over and over again. And, and you want to explore some freedom from that cycle. His name is Jesus. And he stands ready to accept your plea for help ready to give you a new start, a clean slate, ready to walk alongside you in that struggles that you have, but you'll never be alone again. And this is a choice that you could make right now. Why, why would you look at this person who loves you, who treats you with most favored position, 
and miss out on an opportunity to extend your heart to that one. Listen, if that, ex- that describes who you are right now, I just ask that you would just talk to God this morning and tell him, I know I'm running circles. This is not what I want with my life. Will you please give me a new direction, a clean slate? I'm in. I want to follow you. And you make a choice to not let that love get away, to not have to live with what you deserve, but to live with what you don't deserve, freedom, hope, joy. It's all yours to be had. Guys, we close this morning. This is not just about people who might be on the fringes of knowing you and maybe haven't made a choice yet. This is also about followers of yours who feel embarrassed with the struggles that they have in life. And they've wondered at times if you're ready to just give up on them. If you're so frustrated with them that you just don't want to have anything to do with them. And I just ask that you would renew their sense of connection to you that you would come in waves of your spirit through the congregation and just tell the hearts and minds that need to hear this, you are loved. I've not given up on you. I'm not fed up with you. I'm going to be with you. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Don't throw your arms up in frustration and be done with me because I am not done with you. God, I ask you would pull in these hearts that you deeply care about and that there would be a connection between what we know to be true, that you love us, you die for us, you care for us, and that it would become a heart choice that we make to follow, to hold on to, and to desire to please you. God, we are so thankful for this picture May it be something we always remembered that as you're looking down the road to Calvary that would start with a betrayal, you place that person in a place of honor. You told them you loved them, that they still mattered. It's true about us too. We're so grateful for it so much to celebrate. We don't get what we deserve and it's all because of you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with